Welcome. This is the Sydney Ideas Podcast, bringing you talks and conversations featuring the best and brightest minds at the University of Sydney and beyond. Thank you, everyone, for joining us tonight. I'm really, really excited to be moderating, hosting uh, this event. I'm Kimberly Weatherall, and I'm a Professor of Law at the University of Sydney and a Chief Investigator with the ARC Centre of Excellence on Automated Decision-Making and Society, which is dedicated to researching and furthering responsible, ethical and inclusive automated decision-making. And I'm really excited, and ADMS is really excited, to be hosting um, Professor Frank Pasquale from the Brooklyn Law School tonight. Uh, Frank Pasquale is an extraordinary scholar with wide-ranging interests across law, political economy, literature, philosophy, and so much more. And he's been ahead of the curve on many of the issues confronting us in the digital world. His 2016 book, The Black Box Society, raised the alarm about the growth of inscrutable digital technologies, something we're constantly talking about today. Um, His more recent book, The New Law of Robotics, asks us to think about the rules that um, should apply as robotics becomes more advanced, ranging beyond Asimov's three famous laws um, to argue, for example, that robots should have to declare themselves um, and not pretend to be human and so much more. Um, Today, though, Frank's going to be talking to us about the impact of AI on healthcare and medical practice, a topic that could not be more timely. Um, when responses to COVID have raised our awareness of the importance of rapid data-driven responses, when Amazon, Google and others are making investments um, in healthcare and health data, and the EU and many other countries are racing to apply AI to massive pooled data for healthcare research. And after Frank speaks for about 20 minutes, we'll follow up with a dialogue. And at that point, um, Frank and I will be joined in this virtual stage by Associate Professor Justin Skono. Justin is Director of Research in Paediatric Anesthesia at the Children's Hospital at Westmead, where he's also a project lead for um, a project, Big Data for Small People, which is a collaborative critical care informatics program. Um, And, I mean, it could not be more important, again, in this sort of conversation to have that medical perspective as well as um, everything Frank is about to um, to share with us. So without further ado, I'm going to turn my camera off and I'm going to hand over to Well, thank you so much, uh, Kim. That was such a generous introduction, and it was particularly an honor to uh, be introduced by you, given uh, how much you've contributed to our understanding of intellectual property um, and your research on ADM and uh, related law and technology issues. Um, I really appreciate that and uh, am uh, very grateful for this opportunity uh, to be on uh, such an august panel Um, and uh, just really pleased to have a medical professional with deep uh, knowledge and expertise joining us as well. So today I will share some slides uh, to sort of guide us through and give some um, visuals here with respect to our uh, journey through AI and medical practice and trying to understand it. Let me just uh, to uh, show the entire show. And I'm gonna provide today a law and policy perspective because I think it is really critical to consider both how we understand law, AI, and medicine from a medical perspective, but also from a law policy and ethics perspective, there are enormous numbers of very difficult issues that are gonna be on the horizon. And I think in some ways, understanding how the values at stake are going to be um, reimagined in a world of pervasive artificial intelligence, chatbots, robots, 
et cetera, that's going to be a great challenge um, for us, both as academics, but also as uh, citizens, as people working through how best to structure state support and regulation of the medical sector. So to start with, I wanted to just uh, go back to the old dream of AI in medicine. Um, this, uh, for, for those of you who are Trekkies, um, you'll probably recognize this as the, the tricorder. This is a device that was used uh, in Star Trek uh, to instantly diagnose and uh, treat many forms of ailments. And the dream behind a device like this is full automation, right? That you could essentially create a fully automated system for treating and uh, uh, diagnosing disease. And I say about 10 years ago, this was a big part of the dream of AI and medicine in general. There was just a lot of enthusiasm for having this type of device that would, or at least uh, 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 a dream of automating so many aspects of medical practice. And it was a noble dream in the sense that there are, are many people that are not able to access the medical system. Um, and particularly thinking about um, areas in the world with uh, very low incomes and, and low numbers of medical professionals. Um, but the sad reality is that this original dream has been delayed and is perhaps indefinitely delayed as those who work in AI and computer science and related fields uh, grapple with the ongoing need for intervention and advice and mediation between the technology and uh, patients. And that mediation, of course, is provided by, by doctors uh, and, and by nurses and by many other medical professionals. Now, once we get beyond that original dream, we look to, sorry, we look to uh, examples in ongoing medical practice and in the most advanced forms of uh, AI that are in common use, like in search engines, those sorts of devices, those sorts of uh, uh, processing of information they are sometimes held forward as a first step toward automation, right? But the example I give in this slide of search results that come up when people search for something like colloidal silver on the left-hand side, I think they show that there's just a lot to be desired in automated processes for say, arranging medical information. You look for some things online, and of course, I will defer to medical experts as to which of these things is actually true. Um, but you can imagine that anyone you know, trying to figure out if they should take or shouldn't take colloidal silver um, would be baffled by this and would want to uh, get the advice of an actual medical professional as opposed to, say, relegating it to Dr. Google. Um, you also see on the right-hand side of the slide what's known as a card in Google search. And essentially what happened with respect to Google's efforts to order medical information is that for a while, the philosophy was that what was used with respect to Google for any particular type of search could be used for medical searches, that there would be this something like a general intelligence of search that would help people find what the best results were. But several years into that approach, they decided that they really needed to bring in medical experts to develop things like the card that you see on the right-hand side in the cell phone. And so these are not automated results when you see a card like this or sort of an image on the right-hand side on a desktop computer for a search. Um, they're actually showcase human-computer interaction and cooperation. And that'll be a theme of my talk tonight, that 
the real goal of AI in medicine is not going to be to replace doctors or indeed many other medical professionals, but it's going to be to provide different types of decision support, advice, error reduction, quality assurance, all of those things are going to really, I think, be the new AI dream in medicine. And there's still a lot to be done there. Now, one thing that we can note is that uh, there are thinkers out there um, like Dr. Eric Topol, a very uh, esteemed and uh, very perceptive uh, analyst of the scene, who suggests things like AI for the simple things, right? Um, the idea that Amazon could assume drug distribution, that they could start using voice platforms like Alexa to help discuss symptoms and get feedback, to coordinate hospital post-op care through voice-activated AI, and to do these and other rote things, right? So uh, this is one vision for the future of AI medicine, that we're going to see a future where things like care coordination, things like telling people how they ought to act post-surgery, when they can say after a knee surgery, um, how active the knee should be, um, how they should move the knee, things like that, that that would be the goal for using AI for these things. Um, but I will say that the question becomes from a law and policy perspectives, are these actions really so simple, right? Are they really something that can be automated, put into code, or do we have to ask difficult questions about them? So from a law and policy perspective, just to think about something like care coordination after a surgery, one question that comes up is a licensure question, right? The idea that a lot of the individuals that were involved in that um, in many medical systems would need to get a license from the state to be involved. And so if you are going to be outsourcing that to a computer system, would you also want to get some level of licensure or quality assurance or something like that for the computing system? That's gonna be a big question. We, we can think about, for example, chatbot therapists, right? There may be uh, programs out there, apps that are marketed as being providing something like a therapist for those who either can't afford or who are calling it at difficult times, like the middle of the night. Um, they want to get some level of comfort, assurance, advice, and there may well be automated chatbots giving that. But then the question becomes, we, we do license often or provide some level of education and certification for those who provide um, this type of sensitive medical health, mental health advice. Do we want to do the same in the case of the devices or chatbots that do that? A second question is institutional liability, right? Uh, e even if we, uh, if we decide not to do the licensure, there still might be very bad outcomes. You know, we can still imagine situations where there's some glitch, there's some error in the product. How far does that liability go? Um, if the hospital has recommended Alexa or has used that as a platform, um, can Alexa be in trouble? Probably the case is that a company as large as Amazon, before allowing such a, a device to even be used in coordination with a hospital, would probably require the hospital to sign some sort of agreement that would disclaim all liability. But then the hospital is left with the liability, right? and, but it may not be their fault. And so these are difficult questions when we think about the errors that could happen, different types of predictable problems that could occur along the line of this AI-driven um, medical care. A third is malpractice. Um, are the same laws that, have, that govern malpractice, physician liability, uh, in cases of direct treatment, are those going to be transferable to the new devices that are on the horizon? Or are these going to be framed as something like a book that you might consult? You know, and that's something that's going to be coming up 
over and over in the adoption of AI and robotics in medical care is to what extent is it possible to hold them to the same types of standards that a person would. Um, the scholar Ryan Abbott uh, from England has made a very uh, interesting case about a direct parallel between say robots that do and AI that does the same things as uh, humans do and humans themselves and arguing for treating them in parallel ways. Um, but there are others that are going to say that there are uh, dynamics of institutional responsibility for what the robot does or AI does that might prevent that type of um, direct um, uh, parallel. And then informed consent, are people truly consenting to this AI understanding it or not? And finally, privacy. Privacy will always be a major concern. And you know, before, rather than talking about these further in the abstract, I want to give some concrete examples here. And so some of the concrete examples of how traditional medical professionals are uh, challenged or enhanced by technology include, for example, caregivers who may find that there are robotic entities or avatars that will be assisting them or even replacing them in some context. Um, there are even uh, in the ICU, in the intensive care unit, the second example is a physician has long decided whether to maintain a patient on life support, saying, is this treatment futile or not? Is it just we should give up? Or is there still some hope of a functional recovery? By contrast, in the future, we're probably going to see many more uh, quote-unquote death algorithms that predict likelihood of recovery based on thousands or hundreds of thousands of data points from dialysis machines, um, ventilators, uh, other forms of uh, monitoring, heart rate monitoring, that could say among, say, 100,000 or a million people in the data set that had, uh, and, and looking within that data set at a subset that had the same type of um, uh, vitals, predicting uh, that that group would experience uh, a final uh, passing within a number of weeks, that may well be used among many doctors and intensivists and hospitalists uh, to help decide the course of treatment. Similarly, and on a lower stakes, lower stakes scenario, but only slightly lower stakes, um, we may move to a situation where derm dermatologists, rather than uh, using merely their own eyesight, um, could use machine learning programs to compare any mole that they see to a set of 1 million cancerous and 1 million non-cancerous moles and sorting it into one category. As soon as that's available to the dermatologist, you're also gonna see a lot of demand for it among individuals, right? Consumers, ordinary patients that are gonna say, before I spend the time and, and, and perhaps have to wait months to see a dermatologist, I want a sense of whether this is really serious or not. And finally, you know, this is something that's already has happened for many years, uh, moving from a situation where doctors are deciding if two drugs will interact with bad effects. You know, this is one reason why Paxlovid is often, uh, it's, it's hard to get because doctors have to make a drug assessment about the potential uh, effects between it and existing drugs that the patient is taking. Two clinical decision support software advising on these drug-drug interactions. And just to make this a little more concrete, you know, one of the questions that comes up with respect to licensure is, if we have a robotic caregiver, do we want some level of licensing or uh, checking of how it works and what type of information it's recording? For example, this is the Paro robotic seal. It's been used in different nursing homes and this seal is programmed to bat its eyes and to look as if it is uh, deeply engaged with what the person uh, who's looking at it is uh, doing. And the questions arise as to what is it recording? How is it sensing its environment? Um, how long are the recordings kept? 
All of those are interesting questions that raise uh, the possibility of a need for further um, monitoring and regulation of this intervention. Another interesting stepping point or midpoint between say full automation and robotics and humans involved is an avatar used by a firm named CareCoach. And here um, individuals, rather than having a 3D robot, they have an avatar um, that is uh, a mechanically voiced um, animation of a pet, but it's actually voiced, uh, this has been used in Massachusetts in the US, but the voice is coming from workers uh, in the Philippines or in other uh, uh, lower cost labor uh, destinations and uh, is being mediated and expressed through uh, the robotic voice. Um, and will ask things like, how are you doing? Have you taken a walk today, et cetera, as a form of monitoring of vulnerable elderly persons. Again, there are very interesting questions there about the nature of reimbursement here. Um, should the individuals behind the system be reimbursed the same way that say um, direct caregivers are? If not, how much less? Um, and lots of other questions arise in the process of thinking about how to make a fair labor transition um, towards some of these more forms of mediated care. And of course, the intellectual property and what they say may eventually become used by robotics, right? Um, you may have people at the beginning, but if all of their conversations are recorded, that may well become a corpus of information and language that could be used in a fully automated context in the future. Um, some of these concerns come down to, does it work? Right, uh, And can an elder or their family turn off this monitoring that may be necessary in the context of the avatar or the care robot? Um, is the robot capable of reaching a broad spectrum of potential clients? How do we even measure how well it works? Right, um, One study looking at these types of care robots actually measured the cortisol in study participants' urine to figure out if the cortisol level was reduced. And that was sort of seen as a biomarker of stress reduction. So this is a really interesting question, but I think what, what it raises is not only these questions of does it work, but um, the further questions about how it works and should it work, right? Is this treating people in a sort of behavioristic way? Um, we should also look behind the labor shortage idea. A lot of times the reasons why these uh, robotics or AI are being used is because of an ostensible labor shortage. But of course, uh, in many contexts, the labor shortage really is an indication of perhaps low wages for human caregivers. And so is that a way of addressing the issue? Um, I think that in giving the big picture here, uh, there's a classic idea in US health economics policy called the iron triangle. And the idea of the iron triangle is that there's a trade-off between the quality of care you get access to care generally, and the cost of care. You can often improve one thing, you can sometimes improve two things, but it's extremely difficult to improve all three things in the triangle. And so whenever you see a certain forms of automation or AI pushed in medicine as cost reduction, the first question to ask, I think, is are we trading away quality? Are we potentially trading away access? Another way of framing this issue, um, and I think a, a very sophisticated way, is the uh, law professor Nicholas Terry's trilemma between automation, value, and empathy. The idea being that you can, again, uh, advance one of those three and potentially two of those three, but it's very hard to advance uh, automation, value, and empathy at the same time. Um, I think also in thinking about the, the death algorithm in, this, in the ICU and in the intensive care unit, uh, the positive affordance is there is that it will lend objectivity to a lot of these very difficult decisions. It can be an algorithmic supplement to doctors' clinical practice guidelines and offers some level of comfort and quantification, 
right? In the sense that if one really knows that there's never been a recovery of a patient given a certain set of vital statistics as uh, processed by machine learning and AI, then that does uh, provide some comfort for the, the caregiver or for the uh, family member that may not want to continue treatment. But the troubling outcomes are also quite possible, right? This could rigidify funding and reimbursement guidelines. There may be insurance companies or public authorities that say that we will not pay for given care um, if the person scores below a certain score on this algorithm. Clashes of culture over how these decisions should be made and even potential roles for this death algorithm in the allocation of resources and rationing. So these are all very difficult questions that policymakers have to gra grapple with. I'd also note that with triage, you know, what happens, say, when hospitals use AI to triage which patients in the ER should be seen? Um, what about whether to authorize an emergency room visit for someone suffering stomach pain? Very different, dif difficult differential diagnosis with respect to stomach pain. Um, one problem that may arise is that people may alter their behavior to be recognized by the algorithm. Um, just as sometimes patients are asked, how bad is your pain on a one to 10 scale? Um, one doctor recently said that the way to answer that is that if you want very strong uh, pain drugs, you say an eight or a nine, right? It's not, it's not really that there is an objective measure or uh, projection there, right? And I'm certainly not endorsing that. I think that's a really scary effect. Um, but I think that, you know, as, as Hao Wang has argued in this uh, really, really recent piece called Transparency as Manipulation, uh, there are problems if the triage mechanisms and methods are kept secret because then it's opaque and it's not really that uh, responsible to the larger citizenry. But there are problems also if we reveal how the algorithm works exactly because of this issue of gaming and an issue of potential uh, interventions by individuals. So both of those are very diff difficult uh, questions to be uh, answered. Um, just to give you a very uh, early example of clinical decision support and the decision rules there, um, this is just a, a sort of early form of code um, that could be used. And nowadays things become much more complex. And I think as things become more complex, harder questions are raised about the use of AI and clinical decision uh, support. Um, when these questions are raised, I think a really nice typology that was put forward by Nicholson Price, Sarah Gerke, and Glenn Cohen in their article, Liability for Use of AI in Medicine, is to consider whether the AI recommendation, first of all, is for standard or non-standard care, and secondly, if it's correct or not correct, and thirdly, if a physician follows it. And as you can see, this results in at least eight different possibilities. And we should look for very closely at the possibility, first of all, that the doctor rejects an AI recommendation that is standard and that is correct, clearly an issue for injury and liability. But also, very interesting question in terms of an AI recommending non-standard care that's incorrect and the doctor follows it. These are the two red boxes on the chart of injury and liability, right? And how will the legal system deal with that potential liability and responsibility for someone who's following AI advice? Um, that will be a uh, critical question for courts around the world to answer. And I think that it's uh, just highlighting the issue here and I look forward to you know, our discussion of it. Um, there's also hypotheticals about to what extent our database is representative, right? If, even if there is not a problem of tort liability for using say an unrepresentative database now, perhaps eventually there should be because we know thanks to books like Deep Medicine and research like uh, by Adamson and Smith in, in JAMA Dermatology that there are problems in terms of many databases 
not being adequately representative of minority skin types of uh, women. There's a book by Carolyn Criado Perez about the lack of women in many different medical research databases. And as that becomes more better known, um, I've argued in past work in the Columbia Law Review that there should be liability for failure to make databases more representative. But there will be a lot of resistance to that because people say, well, if we're using a database, don't blame us to the, that it's not perfect. So big tensions there. My final points now, and I see I'm, I'm out of time, sorry to go a little over, is that there's really three metaphors for the future of AI in the professions. The first is that it's going to be the meta expert, the AI uh, decision maker, that those behind AI, computer scientists analyzing data will take on a role that will be something like, they will be experts as to who is an expert. And that is AI above and, judge, above and beyond and judging the value of domain experts. I don't think we're going there for the many reasons I've given in this talk about the already seen difficulties of using AI to replace human professionals. A second option is a melting pot where the AI and the profession merge into some third thing or new practice. And that may well be happening in some forms of radiology and pathology right now, but I don't think it's gonna to happen to the core of medical practice. Instead, I think that we're going to see more of a peaceable kingdom where AI and the medical profession maintains their distinctiveness, but each learns a lot from the other. And I hope the conversation that we're about to begin uh, can be an example of that. So thank you. Thank you so much for that, Frank. It's um, terrific to get that overview. And I feel like we could probably talk for several hours about that um, and everything that you've raised. But look, I want to open up the conversation first by turning to um, Justin for your response um, to everything you've just heard from Frank and what, what you'd like to draw out, speaking as a medical professional rather than on the law and policy side. Sure. Thanks very much, Kim. And thanks, Frank, for an excellent, excellent talk. Um, again, we could talk for, for many, many, many hours. One of the things I'd like to ask you is, in, in a legal or regulatory framework, how do we quantify and deal with aspects of care that are really difficult to quantify? Things like the care factor, the bedside factor, the fact that the nurses, doctors, and allied health professionals have got that human touch component. Whereas a lot of the way we see AI at the moment is decision-making, data-driven, if this, then that. Um, how, do we, how do we come to a, a, a quantification of what actually matters in medicine uh, from a law and regulatory framework point of view? This is a terrific question, I think. And I think that the demand for uh, a quantifiable, say, percentage of um, risk in various scenarios is very strong. And I think that the, um, as there's more and better data, I think we will be able to quantify risk in various scenarios and to, for example, uh, give the relative risk of various forms of treatment for various types of people. I think that's the, one of the, the critical issues here that I, I didn't address in my talk, but I think intersects with your uh, question, is the, the question of both risk overall and personalized levels of risk. Um, and we've certainly seen that with COVID, right? I mean, it, it, almost every 10 years, one goes beyond 20, from 20 to 30, 30 to 40, 40 to 50, et cetera, uh, massive increases in risk uh, by age. Also some increases by gender and some other issues uh, with males often being at more risk and things like that. And so this is a really interesting question, you know, to sort of think about uh, broadly, thinking about the, the, the whole array of uh, different types of um, features and characteristics one can have of any particular patient. So my hope there, and this perhaps here is where I'm a dreamer, is that we will get more and better 
data about different drugs, different treatment measurements, regimens, different approaches to dealing with uh, medical problems. And from that, we'll be able to um, follow the example of evidence-based medicine and the Dartmouth Atlas of Medical Care and find optimal care uh, that is personalized. But I think that without that type of big data and, and a lot more data sharing and analysis, it's gonna be hard to get there to get to that sort of quantified risk level that I think you're, you're quite rightly pointing to. Can I just right. jump in there? Because something else that's raised by what Justin just said is, and it's coming up in the questions a little bit too, this you know, question around mental health um, and what the mental health implications of replacing humans with robots might be. Um, and you know, in your talk, you, you mentioned you know, empathy, like a triangle with empathy, automation, value, and empathy. Um, speaking as someone who works in a centre that looks at kind of automated decision-making, um, one of the questions we're constantly asking ourselves is, do we really want automation or do we just want augmentation? Do we want, um, you know, do we want to get the benefits we can from data-driven devices, you know, data-driven research, but have that, you know, in partnership with the human who provides the, um, you know, the empathy side or the bedside matter or the other questions that are so important. Um, Frank, I know you've written about this. Did you have a comment on that? Yes, I'm so glad you brought up the automation versus augmentation uh, divide, because I think that's really critical. And I think that in so many of these settings, the real question comes down to how do we divide out that level of um, that, that issue? And I just want to give an example from automated driving, because I think that's closer to a lot of uh, our day-to-day -day understanding. Um, one of the concerns that was raised about some automated vehicles is that they would be designed so that right before a crash or when there were signs of, of trouble, they would turn over responsibility to the driver, and then it was the driver's fault. Right? And, and the worry in some augmentation scenarios is that um, many of the medical professionals might end up with a great deal of responsibility but then without a lot of support in that background and an ability to, and as an institutional level, have institutional support to say, contradict the advice or uh, recommendation of an AI system. And so I think that the, the question of how we can get to better handoffs and better ways of informing people um, is a critical one. And that I think is gonna take a lot of research into human computer interaction. Um, ben Schneiderman has a wonderful recent book on uh, AI and toward better AI. He was a human computer, he is a human computer interaction researcher who was at the University of Maryland, now is emeritus. Looking back on you know, 30 years of research of how to develop optimal relationships or partnerships between um, computers and, and humans in, in various roles. And I think that that HCI field is gonna be one to watch in the future as we move toward a, a, an augmentation goal as opposed to the automation goal in, in so many of these areas. Thank you. Um, another question that's come up in the questions and I know comes up a lot in the literature is the question about data um, and whether we have the right data um, to actually develop the kinds of AI or clinical you know, decision support or um, diagnosis. Um, systems that we want. Justin, I know that you have this project, um, Big Data for Little People. I was wondering if you have a view on whether we whether we have the data, whether we have the programs in place to get the data um, that are going to be needed for any of this to work. 
It's a superb point. What one's got to understand is that there is a huge diversity of data types within medicine. And some of them are highly organized, very well understood and standardized, in particular standardized. So one of the particular areas that has seen more progress than not is medical imaging. So we've got standards, DICOM standards for reporting medical imaging and even how to store that data. So there are areas of medicine that are very well suited to initial automation. However, at the other end of the spectrum, you've got recording human interactions, recording human decisions, the the mess of clinical notes that we all have to deal with. You know, the old story about a doctor's handwriting. Um, That type of information is phenomenally difficult to handle. There's progress being made, but you've got a very wide variety of data types in medicine. So my answer to your question is really, it depends on which area of medicine you're looking at. Frank gave the example of things like melanoma diagnosis. And in that situation where you can precisely quantify how that picture is taken, that's an area where rapid progress can be made. But in the general practitioner's environment with a sick patient walking in off the street, um, that is a much harder environment to quantify, to digitize, to standardize. So um, depends on your area that you're interested in. Yeah, that's a really interesting observation. Because I, I have I've certainly noticed when you look at, say, the approvals that the FDA has made of AI um, in use in medicine so far, it, a lot of it has been around the imaging. I've always put that down to the fact that there's so much technical work in visual recognition, you know, so that we can do things like make automated cars or the like. But what you're telling me is it's also about the data. It is. And what we're also seeing, and, and, you know, Frank from the United States, is the United States has driven and been part of a massive explosion in electronic health records. Barack Obama got it going in 2008 as part of the GFC recovery processes. Um, And so EHRs are now genuinely big money and genuinely big sources of data within healthcare. And this is happening globally. Um, But it's a work in progress. And there are areas where that data is not digitized, as I've referred to in the GP practice. Um, And our little project, Big Data for Small People at the Children's Hospital, is aiming to try and digitize one of those bits of data that just simply isn't captured. Uh, And so... That we're we're quite a way away from saying all of the data is there ready for some super smart AI algorithm to work on it. Can I just follow up, Justin, because it occurs to me that, you know, you're, you're talking there about standardisation. I've seen a lot of calls in the literature in this space for, you know, we need, you know, standard clinical descriptions, we need standard mm. ways to record the data, we need standard definitions of clinical tasks and the like. Mm. And I'm just wondering... Who develops those standards? Um, you say that exists in it. Is it is 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 that a question for law and policy makers? Is it a question for technical people? Is it a question for medical people? Is it a question for the medical societies? It, look, that standardization and, and codification of medical terminology, diagnoses, and that, but there are some areas that are extremely well explored. ICD-10 coding, international coding for diseases, is a well-known way of coding what diseases happen wherever they do to who and whomever. Um, But with the bigger volumes of data that medicine is having to deal with, imaging, physiological data, there are big big pushes to try and streamline that. There's a specific code called HL7, which is one of the interoperability standards for medical information. And there's a background um, governance architecture for that called uh, FHIR, Fast Healthcare Interoperability Resources, 
And so the data managers within hospitals are getting familiar with those types of protocols, those types of data standardization processes. Um, and at, at, a, at hospitals where this is advanced uh, quite to, to quite a degree, you'll find everyone knows those language, the language, they know the terms, and they're familiar with it. Whereas in institutions that have had none of this happening, they'll, they'll go, what are you talking about? I've never heard of that standard. So application is currently kind of ongoing and it's uh, very much a work in progress. I keep having this talk about standards in AI. It's interesting to hear that from a different perspective than the usual ones. Um, Frank, one of the questions that um, has come up and that's been quite popular on Slido, I noticed, is this question of how we avoid the use of AI creating a self-referential cycle, um, you know, which the use of AI changes the data that is measured and that new data is then used to further train data. You know, so one of the problems we know that arises with um, AI systems can be that problem of kind of learning from learning and changing over time. And there are examples of that in the medical field. I'm wondering, because you're familiar with the way the medical regulators work, they have the job of approving medical devices and approving some of these AI systems. Do you think they're equipped to deal with this new technology? Do they need to change? Do they need different expertise? Are they the right regulators in this space? I just thought you might have some comment there. It's a terrific question, right? And I think that this is, uh, and the question that I think is recurs across different areas uh, of AI regulation is this difficulty of state capacity, of having the individuals in the state who are familiar with the very cutting edge, uh, often because the salary differentials are so high. I mean, you routinely hear stories of professors of machine learning or AI at universities being offered 10 times their salary in the private sector. And so this, I think, is one very critical issue in terms of resources uh, and trying to make sure that there are the resources available to medical regulators um, you know, that could be in part based on some type of uh, tax on the industry or other sorts of user fees, et cetera, which is one of the ways that the US uh, FDA has tried to keep itself funded in the midst of the just incredible growth of the type of uh, issues that are being, it, it needs to address. But I think that it is, it's, it's your question also about the way in which the data can lead to um, self-fulfilling prophecies or can in other ways be biased. I do think that regulators are starting to get on top of that. I think that it's, it's so dramatic, some of the problems. And I think that particularly the recent study uh, by Ziad Obermeyer and others um, with respect to the use of insurance records to predict the need for further clinical care um, being uh, pretty deeply uh, uh, biased because the problem was that a lot of the uh, minorities in the database were just not getting the care that they needed. And so therefore there was a lot of uh, issues with respect to how that should be, how, how fair it would be and how unfair it is to use that type of data to uh, condition and to further allocate care in the future. And so I think that that's gonna, that is something that they're sensitive to, but it's something that requires a pretty coordinated regulatory response and intervention at the national levels and perhaps even in a multinational level. Unfortunately, there are uh, multinational groups working on this type of uh, AI standardization that I hope will be addressing this uh, soon. Kim, could I just jump in there? And, and the, the regulators issue is a fascinating one. And I'm, I'm curious about the impact of working in a specific healthcare sector in a specific country, because 
if you have if you work in a country where there's a very strong profit motive within medicine in general and there is the danger of what you've described frank of big salaries on one side of the fence and nothing on the other that's a that's a tricky situation to work in whereas if you've got a more socialized healthcare model where the disparities are not as big you might be able to have a regulatory system that is up to snuff that is actually able to cope with the volume of work that this is going to generate because it's going to be big what are your thoughts on you know the the national level challenges that different countries might have I really like that way of framing it. I think that's a very good way of framing it in terms of thinking about how all of the issues we address under the uh, rubric of AI bias, AI discrimination, um, other issues like that, they're embedded in larger political economic systems. And that that, that is going to, and particularly this is a helpful uh, perspective in thinking about the role of leadership of jurisdictions that have say a less profit-oriented system than the U.S. often is, you know, where there are lots of pressures to be uh, just uh, um, using whatever data is to hand or to try to rapidly scale up um, uh, applications as opposed to taking, say, a more slow and deliberate and considerate approach. Considered approach. So I think that's right. And I think that there is some uh, hope there. And there's something, one reason why I'm, I'm on this trip is to, to learn more about uh, the way things are done here in, in Australia and to learn further about, uh, and to be able to be better poised for the comparative research that you're suggesting. So thanks. I think that's a really interesting point. Um, speaking of profit motives, <laughs> can, I, can I take us in a slightly more speculative um, direction? Because one thing that... Um, stuck out in the news to me just in the last week or so was Amazon um, acquiring, what was it called? One One Medical, um, which is um, a kind of, it's a primary care provider, right? It has doctors who see patients um, all over the country. And it's, it's interesting to see a big tech company like Amazon investing in primary healthcare it, well, that's you know not intuitive that that's their business. They sell books and a whole lot of other you know movies and things like that. Um, I'm wondering what the impact of acquisitions and and the move of the very large tech companies into this space might be. Um, I mean, you know, one of the concerns that people raise is the privacy one, which you raised in your presentation. You know, the question about what that means for consumers. But I'm also wondering particularly with something like an acquisition of um, a primary care provider where doctors are working and meeting with patients and the results of that are presumably being recorded, what that might mean for doctors and other clinicians right, and other um, healthcare providers, right? Amazon, for example, has a reputation for monitoring its employees and what they're doing and how they're making decisions. Um, and one can't help but think that, you know, Amazon would be interested in looking at not just the patients, but potentially the doctors, you know, doctors who might be employees and looking at their decision-making, perhaps seeking to influence that decision-making or explore how doctors make decisions and what some of the outcomes of that might be. And I'm just wondering, like, do you have any comment on that? You know, like, if, if you know, we, we focus a lot when we're talking about AI and health on the impact on consumers, on individuals, on the care that they receive, I'm just wondering if you have any comment on the potential impact on doctors. I'm so glad you asked this question, uh, Kim. Of course, I should defer uh, <laughs> to, to Justin here. Yeah, you uh, first, you first, Frank. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I do think that there's 
it's a great question, right? And I mean, I think part of, uh, and Justin already mentioned the uh, big push for electronic health records in the US, the way a lot of physicians interpreted and experienced that was as a sudden increase in unpaid labor, where they were essentially forced to do a huge amount of data entry in often very unfamiliar and bulky systems with terrible user interfaces. And you know, so this, this cuts both ways with respect to big tech coming in, because my bet would be, and, and I, I apologize to anyone who works at Epic Health Systems or Cerner or the big EHR systems, but my bet would be that Apple or Google would come up with a more usable user interface for electronic health records than what these other, what the dominant incumbents in the U.S. have come up with. Um, and so therefore, you know, I think that that's the promise there. And the promise there also is of, you know, incredible capacities for data aggregation and for long-term investment. And to the extent that, you know, the state shrinks from this long-term investment and it, and it should be done, I can see a lot of people welcoming a, a Google or Amazon or others to do that type of investment. But you're exactly right to say that there is the problem of de-skilling. This was the one of the best books on automation I've read overall is Nicholas Carr's The Glass Cage, um, Automation and Us. And he talks about this problem of de-skilling and he, he does a case study in particular on um, uh, uh, pilots and how the work of piloting a plane is, is very difficult, has been largely automated, but there are ways of automating it that preserve a pilot sense of skill and autonomy and those that don't. And, and you have to worry about that, particularly in a firm like Amazon, which has been you know, so often criticized for um, very harsh labor practices. Um, so I, I think that that's, a, that's an issue that I think is really deserves to be brought front and center at the uh, competition policy level. And I think what's so interesting now is whether competition law policy will be able to evolve and think about the potential social and uh, consequences of conglomeratization of, of more and more things being brought into larger and larger companies like healthcare and Amazon, or if it'll just be sort of stuck in its own uh, older mode of, of largely only combating cartelization um, of a particular industry. Justin, did you want to add anything? Not sure, not, not sure where to start. It's a juicy set of uh, options to talk about. Um, just going back to the, the, the potential impact of the big tech companies getting involved in healthcare, um, it, I don't think one can you know, strongly be for or against. The reality is the big tech companies have accrued a vast skill set over the past 15 years, leveraging purchasing data, search data, or social media data. Um, and it would be crazy for healthcare systems not to um, benefit in some way from that. As a disclaimer, I must announce that I have got some, have had some discussions with Amazon Web Services, their public domain assistance group. Um, but those, the discussions there are based on trying to set up systems that actually help public sector healthcare environments. Um, and so this is where the regulatory and legal components come in full come into full view if we get those policy settings right then the big tech groups can interact with you know healthcare patient data generated by public healthcare systems in a way that's open and transparent and then everyone gets to benefit but if it becomes an extreme of either option then you just have you know a, a more sort of dystopian take on data that's you know grabbed by large corporations and used for their own purposes so it's where the legal and legal and regulatory components will be will need to overcome those before we can see them in actual clinical practice. I love that. That's uh, 
that's terrific, particularly for this panel. Um, look, we've I've been drawing on the slider questions as we go along, but we're we're rapidly running out of time. So I'm just going to see if I can get some quick responses to a few of the questions that have come up. Um, one, this seems aimed very much at you, Justin, in a lot of ways. How do we navigate what seems to be the a paradox of the gut feeling um, and its importance um, and the problems that that might bring up with bias? Sure. Look. The gut feeling that sits within any healthcare provider when they feel that, you know, that, that child over there is just not quite well enough in the ED and you need to take special care of them is something that's been around since humans have been taking care of each other. Um, and it's very difficult to quantify. It accumulates over time and it's very difficult for experts to put their finger on exactly what it was. So when we, in the 1980s, when we were trying to develop expert systems to make decisions upon specific things, if this, then that type of logic. So it was incredibly difficult to codify why the senior clinicians ended up being correct more often than not. Um, it doesn't, however, mean they are always correct. And I think personally that our reliance on that gut feeling in medicine probably causes more harm than good on average. Sorry to break it to you. That's a personal point of view. But I would favour uh, a more open, protocolized set of processes in a large number of areas of medicine. So we do need to maintain that gut feeling. It's the autonomy of the doctors and nurses that take care of you uh, at some level. But I don't think we should overtrust it. They need to. They need to work hand in hand. Can I jump in just to, to follow up on that? Because I think yeah. that's such an interesting point. And I recently just saw a very similar argument uh, in the legal context by Chris Slobogan. He has an, a book called Just Algorithms. And the idea is that in making decisions about sentencing, that we can uh, we should aim for algorithmic sentencing. And then the second meaning of just is he says, it should just be the algorithm, no human intervention. And, and the question that I, I have is, is perhaps a, a middle ground in the medical context might be, to require documentation for going against the evidence-based practice or going against the AI. Do you think that is a possibility there, Justin, that like possibly we could just say, you know, if you're going to go against the, the what, what is the standard advice or the AI advice that you really have to document why you're doing it? Sure. It, not referring to AI systems in particular, but in, mid, in, in healthcare in the last probably 10 to 20 years, there's seen a drive towards increased protocolization of a number of different processes in medicine. And with the backstory being that if you protocolize those processes, you get obvious improvements in care. Um, to the, the legal audience that I'm assuming is mainly gathered out there, some of the stuff might be a bit hair-raising for you, but it would be protocolization of really simple processes, things like giving an antibiotic before surgery, or when you're putting a drip in, you have to be quite specific about how you clean the skin. Um, there are things where clinicians can often decide to just do their own thing. Oh, it doesn't matter. I know what I'm doing type decisions. However, if you force them all onto the rail and make sure they actually follow those protocols, you end up with better results. And so even in you know, a non-AI type environment, there's good evidence for protocolization, but exactly where that fails and you need to then rely on gut instinct and the more general skills of a senior clinician, that's very hard to determine. So yeah, sorry, not a clear answer, but um, it's a, a tricky area. Now I'm really conscious of the time. We are just about out, but I think there's, there's an important theme in a couple of the questions from Slido that I just want to raise for your final comments before we kind of wrap things up. And that is the, the theme of exclusion. So one of the questions raises is raised about 
um, Indigenous data and the exclusion of Indigenous peoples around the world from some of the data sets and whether we risk leaving them behind again. Um, and also, you know, access for developing countries um, and other, you know, people of lower socioeconomic background or, you know, are we risking some sort of two-tier system or even just like not people not having access? So just quick thoughts on that. The problem we have is regression to the mean. And if we've got a very, very large set of, you know, people or data points um, and we aggregate them together, the danger is that the large volume data points will swamp the small volume data points. And that applies to blood pressures and it applies to um, cultural groups, um, gender, all kinds of other issues. And so it's very important for us to be aware of exactly what components are in those data sets. And then this is where I would defer to the data scientists. We need to correct for that. Um, the, the most important, the most lethal biases are the ones that are invisible and not acknowledged. And so bias may exist in a data set, but at least if you acknowledge it's there and you've got, you've got some method of compensating for it. So that would be my two bits worth. Frank? Yeah, I think this question of bias and access is such an important one. And I think that, you know, there's going to be ongoing, uh, speaking of protocolization, um, protocolization is, with respect to best practices in AI in terms of trying to make sure that uh, data sets are adequately representative and what the standard should be. And I know that there's, uh, I think Carlos Bustamante was working on this with respect to DNA databases. And I think the same type of, of lessons are going to be learned with respect to all manner of medical databases. I do think also the question of two tier is so interesting, Kim. And uh, it's one of the things I'm, I'm starting to work on now is the use of AI as a screening tool. Because I think that there's in systems, say, say there's a medical system, and I, and I heard this about the NHS, although I have not verified it. Um, there may be parts of the NHS that, uh, in England that may not have enough radiologists, or it might take months to see a radiologist. Um, it may, AI uh, may be used as triage to say these are the scans that most need to be seen um, in a system like that. And so on the one hand, this certainly does seem to be like a, uh, a more rational allocation of resources than just brute luck or you know, who is first in line. On the other hand, um, there's a grave concern about some people not being recognized by the AI, even though they should be, uh, or even if, if there were other screening mechanisms, they might have gotten more immediate care. So I think both of those are, are really interesting questions and you could well have a future where um, uh, in various areas, before you get to see a, a, a professional uh, with very scarce time or scarce professionals, you have to go through the AI screen first. And I think that's raised a lot of tough issues for regulators. Quick point, Kim. Bias exists in medicine in every single nook and cranny of medicine or at, at present. And that's obvious to anyone in the area and most people outside of it. So perhaps AI can help us identify those little areas of bias. You know, the data systems can actually say, no, hang on, you, you're excluding that patient's symptoms on the basis of X, Y, and Z. So perhaps it may not be a hindrance, it may actually be assistance if, if we get it right. I love that idea. And although there is a part, there is a part of me that just wants to keep this conversation going because it is so good, um, uh, that's a great point to end on. Um, and we are out of time, but, you know, for, on my for my sake, just thank you. Like, thank you for this conversation because I feel like we've touched on a lot of really, really important issues. And can we do it again sometime? <laughs> Absolutely. I'd love to. Yes. Thanks for listening to the Sydney Ideas podcast. For more links, resources, or the transcript, head to the Sydney Ideas website or subscribe to Sydney Ideas using your favourite podcast app. Oh.